Well, let us uh, read scripture. If uh, you have a Bible, uh, digital or paper or otherwise, we're going to turn to Psalm 148. Um, if you need a Bible, um, again, just put your hand in the air and one of our Connections team members will, will bring you one. You can take it home and keep it. You can leave it here. You can do what you want with it. Uh, but Psalm 148, which is roughly the dead center of your Bible, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. He established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people, praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise the Lord. Pray. Father, we do thank you again for another opportunity to worship you, another opportunity to hear from you. We read the scriptures, Lord, because we know that in them is your voice speak to us continually by your word. Give us ears that we might hear your word every day, and give us ears particularly this morning that we might hear your word. Um, as I articulate it and preach it, may I preach it and articulate it well, faithfully, and I say what you would have me say. God, we lift up to you this morning our, our fellow churches in, in South Asia and Southeast Asia. We know that they are in difficult uh, terrain, and we know that they face various hardships and persecutions. We, we pray, Father, particularly for our fellow Christians in China this morning. We lift them up to you and ask that as they attempt to worship you in spirit and truth, that you would give them the freedom to do that. And if you should not give them freedom, give them the courage to do it anyway. Make them strong and make them brave and make them not fear any human authority that might come down on them. May they be bold in sharing their faith, sharing the good news of the salvation of Jesus Christ, even as we ought to be bold in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. All the different... Uh, ethnicities and people groups from southeastern China to northwestern China, from those uh, living in popular religions and variations on Buddhism and atheism to uh, Islamic uh, strongholds in the West. Father God, in all of those places, we just pray that you will reach in 
people that you would send laborers out into the harvest field to proclaim the good news even in the darkest places where it seems like there is no light. May their courage be our courage. In Christ's name we pray. There's a famous aphorism uh, we all know. I think we all know. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. Uh, its exact origins are a little bit hard to pin down. Uh, the general sentiment was bandied about in the English language for a long time, for centuries. Uh, but the first known record of the exact phrase appears in Thomas Haynes Bailey's poem, The Isle of Beauty, in 1844. So it's not that old a saying. Like I would have thought Shakespeare or something like that. Is it true, though? Does this absence make the heart grow fonder? Well, many of us would probably swear by it. But others of us, maybe the more cynical of us, would, would tend to quip the other less popular but familiar sentiment, out of sight, out of mind. It's not as popular because we like the sentimental ones better than the cynical ones, but likely we've all felt that way through, uh, also. And maybe the truth is that both those sayings, like any good proverb, express a deep-felt reality that isn't universally true, but, but it speaks to something in our daily experience. And while both of these statements could be used in the context of any relationship, we typically use them about our intimate relationships, right? Like a, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a fiancé, spouse. But have you ever thought about absence or, or being out of sight in the context of a relationship with God? And, and then think on this for a second. Does distance from God... Which, which proverb holds true? Does distance from God grow the heart's affections? Or does it dull them? Let that question sink in for a moment, because I, I'm not sure that it's an easy one to answer for most of us. And you might be wondering, what, what is the relevance of, of this? Um, let me suggest some background. The Christian message, the, the Bible's message, starts with the idea of a creator who creates a paradise and his presence is there and, and he dwells with his prized creation in this paradise, mankind, humanity. God and man enjoying one another's company. God delighting in the work of his hands that reflects his image back to him and man delighting in the good king who lovingly rules over all. But the Bible story also tells us that human beings rebelled against God. They stopped trusting him and they, they chose a path of destruction. And the holy creator would not and could not stand to be so near an unholy and sinful people. And the result was that humanity was cut off from the presence of God and made to seek him only at a distance. And so now the, the natural-born state of mankind is absence. It's absence from God. And, and the question I'm posing to you now is whether that absence causes the heart to burn more intensely for its creator, or whether, whether that absence tends to cause us to forget him. Psalm 148 provides maybe a surprising answer to that question. 
as one of the final five, uh, they're called Hallelujah Psalms. Uh, its overall message is the same as the last two we've looked at in this short series. We are urged to praise God, to praise Yahweh. But Psalm 148 differs in how it goes about this urging. For the psalmist, the writer of this poem, God is due praise for his creation and for his redemption. For his creation and for his redemption. So we're going to start, we're going to break this down, and we'll look at um, verses 1 through 6. Verses 1 through 6, we'll see that God should be praised for his creation. Uh, like all the Psalms in this series, it begins with the rejoinder, Hallelujah. Some of your Bibles actually start with that right there, Hallelujah. Others translate it, Praise the Lord. It's how the Psalm closes also. So there's, there's no mistaking what the emphasis is here. Sort of envelope between these two commands, urges, exclamations of praise. And the two halves of this Psalm, 1 through 6 and then 7 through 14, um, are marked by different locations in which the, which the writer calls for praise. And so in verses 1 through 6, there's a call to praise from the heavens or the heights. And it, in order to kind of understand this, the, you know, the Hebrew conception of the universe, like popular conceptions of the universe throughout history, uh, was not a particularly scientific one. We could say maybe it was a an experiential one. They described the universe the way they experienced it as a person standing on the, the surface of the earth and looking up at the night sky. Um, and, and so the, the heavens, or, or sky, is the same word in, in Hebrew, uh, it was the abode above us, where clouds and sun and moon and all the, the lights of the night sky showed up. And then beyond that, beyond the heavens was the, the heaven of heavens, or the highest heaven. And that's where God dwelt. Of course, there's a sense in which that, that kind of computes, even with our modern understanding, um, at, at least from the standpoint uh, um, where we understand that all those sky things and heaven things do exist above us. If we think of down as the center of the earth, those things are above us. And in our modern understanding of the the faith, we believe that God dwells somewhere beyond the universe. He doesn't exist within this realm. And so, from that standpoint, we, we perfectly agree with the, the Hebrews' assessment of, of how they looked at it. God was beyond the realm of the stars. But what might seem odd in our modern way of looking at the universe was that the heavens, uh, the sky was where they also conceptualized the domain of God's supernatural servants. They, they, they res, we went to the angels. They, they resided in the air, so to speak. Not necessarily like right here, but you know, way up there. And without being too sciencey about it, there, there's a certain logic to their conceptualization. Again, they're, they're not trying to put together a scientific uh, argument here. They're just... Um, you know, they're just trying to describe things as they see them. But if God is in the highest of heavens, and, and we're down here, and God has these, these beings that sometimes go from all the way up there and do stuff down here with us, well, then they must generally exist in 
the space in between. So this is in, in the Hebrew poetic uh, spiritual conceptualization of the universe, the area where those beings reside. And the psalmist here calls on uh, the, uh, anything that's in the heavens, anything that's in the heights to praise the Lord. And then he specifies two groups. Um, specifies, it says here, praise him all his angels, praise him all his hosts. The angels probably better translated messengers, and I say better translated because usually in English we use the term angel to kind of like refer to any sort of supernatural being uh, that's not God. And, and the, here's the thing, the Bible doesn't really talk that much about angels. I mean, they, they come up enough, but it never really explains them. It never really gives us much detail about them. Because the Bible wants us to focus our attention on God, not these other sub-creatures, you know. Um, and, and so the Bible doesn't give us much detail. Usually, when the Bible talks about them, the words that it uses to describe these creatures are words that describe their function, what they do. So for all we know, maybe they're like human beings in the sense that some of us are engineers and some of us are accountants. Maybe they're all the same type of thing, but they just have different roles. Or maybe they are as different as uh, an ox and a snake. We, we, we really don't know, and the Bible doesn't really tell us. But we do know that this first group, they, they were messengers. They carry messages, uh, messages from God to human beings. And then in the second group, these hosts. Now, we think of a host as like a large number. And, and that's a really unfortunate thing because that's not what the term conveys. Uh, although a large number certainly was in play, the, the term host is a word for an army. And, and so these are, are supernatural warriors who carry out God's bidding against forces of evil, and at times uh, they might even engage in the affairs of this world also. But their existence reminds us that even as God is a God of love, he is also a powerful and dangerous God who commands armies for his good purposes. And be that as it may, you know, that's just, just some explanatory background. I didn't even get to the point, but, but these powerful beings that you know, we might be tempted to revere. We might be tempted to honor them. They're, they're here listed just simply as things in creation that need to praise God. Here, despite all of their uh, uh, power and all of the, the things we might wonder and, and, and be in awe about them, they're just things in the creation that need to praise God. Psalmist goes on to name the sun and the moon and the stars. You know, what the Hebrews didn't know, and what we can scarcely fathom ourselves, is how absolutely enormous the universe is. This, this universe that they understood God dwells beyond this. We agree with them, God dwells beyond this. But they could scarcely have conceptualized how big that was. And, and now we have even greater understanding and still struggle to understand the, the depth of, you know, billions, trillions of stars and, and planets that are out there 
uh, lights that we see in the night sky and lights that we can't see in the night sky. And they're out there. And, but we know that they're fascinating. We know that they're big. We know they're enormous. And they're more powerful. You know, a star is like a, it's like a little nuclear reactor. Very big nuclear reactor. Uh, you know, these, these things are, are terribly, terribly powerful. And, and so it's no wonder that sun gods and moon gods have often been worshipped. In fact, in the land of, of Canaan, the land of Palestine, the Hebrew words for sun and moon, Shemesh and Yarik, and their related words in nearby languages, were actually the proper names of deities that were worshipped. But rather than being things that we might worship, the writer urges that these lifeless objects themselves are to give praise to God. Seems a little bit odd, doesn't it? And then, so then the writer gets even stranger. But remember, it's poetry, so you know the rules are kind of off in poetry. Um, and, and, and the writer commands that even spaces, like locations, realms, should offer up praise to God. He urges the highest heavens, the heaven of heavens, the place where God dwells, to praise God. And so in the writer's sort of artistic enthusiasm, the place where God hangs out is not God, so it's less than God, and so it ought to give praise to God also. And the waters above the heavens, oh, stranger still, right? But, but in the Hebrew way of looking at things, uh, the sky separated the waters that we see below us on the lakes and the seas and the oceans from the, the skies or the, from the waters above. You know, they had this sense, hey, water comes down. You know, where does the water come from? Well, there seems to be water that's above the sky, above this air here, and there's water below this air here. And so, the psalmist is saying, hey, those waters up there, the waters up there, you know, we know it's the clouds now, but clouds, praise God. Why? And, and the answer is simply because God created them. It says in verses 5 through 6. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded, and they were created. He established them forever and ever, and he gave a decree, and it shall not pass away. He created them, he, and he didn't just create them. He, he gave a command, and it was so. It's an, it's an echo of Genesis 1, the first chapter of the Bible, where God is pictured uttering commands into the void of non-existence, and his mere speech pushed being out of non-being. And these amazing things that the writer has named, from the, from the cloudy waters that give life to our world to the, to the angelic beings who make their way into the presence of God, and these things that exist seemingly eternally. All of them were made by God's hand. And nothing will, nothing could, which God has fixed by his word. And if we take the, the poetic license away for, for just a moment and, and kind of lay this bare, we have a staggering claim. 
evolved these majestic creations to praise God simply because they, well, were his creations, then it's hard to escape it's hard to escape the notion that it is precisely in order to praise God that these things were made. So the, the, the stars and the moon, they don't, they don't have a will. They don't have a seat of desire to choose what they're going to do or not do. The only way they can praise God is if it is their intended disposition to glorify the God who made them. See, I'd argue that when we spend time contemplating the universe, however rare or often that is, um, it's typically in the context of what the universe means to me, what it means to us. You know, we, we're happy for the way food tastes. We're, um, we are happy to enjoy fresh and unpolluted air in the middle of the woods or to smell a flower uh, because of how it makes us feel. We love a, a fresh spring rain because of how it feels on our skins, but but do we stop to think how the universe and all of its machinations and, and variations exists ultimately to praise God? If we could stop and contemplate the universe, however imperfectly from God's perspective, what would we see? When, when we're complaining and um, moaning about the ridiculously cold temperatures we had a couple weeks ago. Yet at the same time, here is God giving a, a winter Sabbath rest to hibernating bears and, and ruminating reptiles. Did, did you see the, the videos lately where the, the cold spells that hit, they hit so far south that alligators in many places took their bodies underwater stick their noses, their snouts up through the water just before it freezes, and then sit dormant below the ice, lowering their body temperature to basically freezing. And they sit there, motionless, taking a very rare and occasional breath until the cold snaps. It's, it's absolutely remarkable. How often does the alligator get a chance to rest like its creator. And yet God gave them rest this winter. All of creation is designed ultimately in some level to praise God. So it's to praise God because he's the creator. In the second half of the psalm, the, the writer turns his attention to the less fantastic sphere of existence, the one's known to humans, um, to the lower regions, to the earth and the seas. Like before, the writer calls out both the living and the non-living. He calls out the animate and he calls out the inanimate. He calls about the, the giant beasts that swim in our seas, but also the phenomena that inhabit our sphere, fire and mist, or, or maybe smoke would be a better translation, hail. Snow. These things are for God's praise also. And then the psalmist comes to humanity. In verse 11, he, he says, Kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. 
kings and rulers, the men and women, the old and young, despite the great dissimilarities between a Saudi prince and a Somali pirate, they are all alike in being summoned to praise God. One scholar, Derek Kidner, writes of these verses, in these few lines there emerges, quite incidentally and with unforced simplicity, the only potential bond between the extremes of mankind, a joyful preoccupation with God. That's an amazing point. I want to come back to that in a, in a way in a second, but uh, the only potential bond between the extremes of mankind, a joyful preoccupation with God. Isn't that, isn't that truth in that? That there are people that are so different from us in faith before who we will never meet, who are in economic strata, higher or lower, that we could never imagine, languages that we could never know, customs and cultures that we'll never comprehend. And yet, if we praise the same God, we have something profoundly important in common. That is an amazing thing. But why then does he call on them to praise God? Here he doesn't root it in creation, although he could have. He could have said, you're a king because God made you a king, and God created all human beings anyway, so praise God for that. He could, but he doesn't. He actually gives uh, two reasons that are, are closely related. First, he says, all these people and all these things on earth should praise God because his name alone is exalted and his majesty is above earth and heaven. In other words, what he's saying is there is nothing so wonderful anywhere to be found on earth or in heaven above. There is nothing in the created order, things known to us in science and things unknown to us in science, that God's majesty is not greater than. And, and so the question then becomes, what else is worthy of our attention? What possibly could be worth our attention and our devotion and our care and our love, our worship? More than this God. What do we fasten ourselves to? What are the things that, that we strive after? We, we tend to think of praise, we tend to think of worship as, oh, that's what I do on Sunday morning. I, I, I come, if I do come, and I, I sing some songs. And that, that is a way of praising, but, but praising is, is deeper than that. It is attributing to God. That's where the word worship comes from. You've probably perhaps heard this before, that it, it is somebody's worthiness, their worthship. That is how we get the term worship. And, and it really is ascribing to God uh, all the value and honor and worth that he deserves. And, and in the context of the Christian life, what the Christian life calls us to do is, is to honor God with every bit of our existence. And, and so really every 
uh, activity that we choose, every thought we think, every word we speak, um, either puts a, a mark of a declaration of, of worship or, or not on, on that part of our lives. And, and so what do we pursue? And why do we pursue it? Because every pursuit in our lives is an opportunity for worship. Do we pursue those things as God being alone exalted, uh, having a majesty that is above earth and heaven? Or are we pursuing things that are simply relegated to this temporary passing sphere? Students are pursuing their grades, and they are pursuing their studies, and they are pursuing their degrees so that they can um, have life satisfaction and and to receive a, a good income. And, and that is wonderful, beauteous, and we should uh, pursue those things. But, but students, do you, do you pursue those things in light of the fact that God is greatest? He's the most important. Boyfriends and girlfriends, you're, you're pursuing, uh, and even spouses, you're, you're oftentimes pursuing a relationship with a, another human being, and you are trying to make that special and you're trying to make that uh, last and endure and you want that to, to be the center of your existence to the point that maybe you think you, you couldn't live without it, but, but are you living for that in light of the fact that God alone is most exalted? What, what would it mean to have a relationship that comes under God's exaltation? What would that look like? How would it be different? Some of us are, are pursuing careers, and, and we are um, pursuing promotions, and we are per, uh, pursuing prestige. Um, we want people to be aware of our competence, and we want people to be aware of how good we are at different things. And, and there's nothing wrong with being competent, and there's nothing wrong with being excellent at the things that we do, but do we want that excellence so that God is shown to be exalted, or are we trying to exalt ourselves? It's always a question of what we are going to ultimately praise. And it can be very easy to twist it. I met with a guy um, this, this past week. I, I won't give you all the details, but suffice to say, his life has been turned upside down, and um, the one thing, his career, um, that he loves and prizes more than about anything else has been taken from him. He might not ever be able to return to it. And I've been talking to him about the gospel. And I, and I said, you know, we've got a test for you. You have, not everybody has such a clear demarcation, but you have a clear demarcation. I said, you know, is Jesus enough for you? If you don't have that career, if that career is stripped from you and taken from you and you can never have it back, will you be satisfied by the fact that we have Jesus? He said, I don't know that I can do that. That's, that's, that's a scary place to be, but that's a clear demarcation. You know, if you want to know where you stand, 
with God? Think about the things you love most dearly and ask yourself this question. If that was taken from me and all I had left was Jesus, would it be enough? That's a tough question, but I guarantee you that the answer to that question will tell you where your heart is with Second reason that he urges all of these people to go to Jesus. In this second reason in this section, he has raised up a horn for his people, a place for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. That's a little bit obscene, so let's let's break that down. What what is he saying when he says he's raised up a horn for his people? Praise for all the saints for the people of Israel who are near to him. The and, and there's some debate, but here's what I what I think. The horn usually, um, especially in poetry, is a is a symbol of strength. Um, a horn could be raised up in battlefield. It can be raised up in uh, war, and so. It, the, the horn is a, a, a thing of strength. And, and God has raised up strength for his people, for all his saints. Amidst all of these peoples of the earth, God has grabbed a hold of a people for himself. And he's endowed them with a certain strength that's not their own. It's a strength that comes from God. We talked last week about how, especially in Psalm 147, that God loves the weak. He seems to cherish the weak and pursues the weak above the strong. Because the reality is that they were all weak, but only those who acknowledge that they are weak can ever see the Creator rightly. And God gives them strength. Out of all the kings of the earth and and out of all of the old men and and young women and everybody in between that are mentioned in this psalm, God has chosen a people for himself, a special people for himself. In the the Old Testament, it's, it's Israel. But we understand that if you know the story of Israel, Israel did not exist to be a thing unto itself, but Israel existed to draw the nations into the worship of God. It finds its final culmination in the person of Jesus Christ. It says that God has raised up praise for all of his saints, which is an odd uh, expression. Does he mean that people are praising his people, and I, I don't think so. I think what he's, he's saying is that he has raised up a praise for them to sing. He has, he has put words in their mouths. He has put words in their hearts for them to praise. And so uh, in, in God grabbing his people, God gives them strength. He takes their weakness. He forms them into a, a strength by his own strength. And he gives them something to praise him about. Um, The praise is an an offshoot of God's own 
heartbeat implanted in us, and it makes us desire to praise him. It says praise for all of his saints, and that, that I think is just a really bad translation, um, and, and it's, it, it's one of those ones, though, it's, like, you can't fault them because like, how do you translate this into, into English? Um, but it's a word we've, we've talked about before. Uh, there's a word in Hebrew called hesed, and, and it's this word that's sometimes translated loving kindness um, or, or covenant faithfulness. And it's a word that deeply describes how God relates to his, his own people. There's, there's love, there's kindness, there's loyalty, there's uh, covenanted commitment. Uh, and all these things are kind of wrapped up into one. And we just don't have a word for that in English. And this is like an adjective form of that word, which is even more awkward to translate. And... The idea, I think, is, is that these are the people on which God's love and kindness and faithfulness and care and consideration has rested. He has placed his headset on these people. They're not saints in the sense that they are holy or that they're perfect or that they're righteous. They are, they are headset ones. They are ones on which God's love has reached down and grabbed them from the face of the earth and these disparate people who are called. And what's amazing here is that he redeems them and, be, and from their redemption, from, uh, from his calling them and choosing them and loving them despite their unlovableness, gives them a voice to praise him. And so whether it is a Saudi prince, or whether it is a Somali pirate, or whether it is a, a Cleveland restaurant tour, those whom God's loving kindness rests God is those people are bound together in God's arms. And what's amazing here at the end of verse 14 for the people of Israel who are near. What, what's crazy about that is that the Bible storyline tells us about man's alienation from God and, and estrangement from God and separation from God. And there's an overarching plot to the Bible that is, what do we do about this estrangement? God loving his creation so much that he doesn't want it estranged from him forever. And yet, so holy that he cannot simply overlook its wickedness. And, and how do you reconcile those things? And, and the story of the Bible is nothing short of a, a rescue mission of God to save sinners, to save wicked people, to draw them back to himself. The reality is, the answer to the question, I think, does absence make the heart grow fonder? 
or is it more of out of sight, out of mind? It seems like the general disposition toward God is out of sight, out of mind. But God is not willing to allow that we were absent, estranged, God made himself near to us. First, he, he did that by, by choosing the Israelites and, and having them build a, a place for his presence among, among his people. The temple, first a tabernacle and then later a temple. Now in the, in the culmination of, of things, God took on flesh. And he, and he came as one of us in the person of Jesus Christ. That he might be near his people and that his people might be dear to us. And so Christ died on the cross. His death and, and his brokenness our brokenness and his resurrection to new life to restore us to new life and bring us near God again. And so there's the need to praise is this praise that he embeds in his people because of what he's done for them. The good news is that there is a God who saves bad people. There is a God who looks for people who are estranged from him and decided that he's out of sight and so he's out of mind and yet he goes seeking them. He grabs them, forms them into a people, gives them and puts a phrase on their lips and says he bestows on them his his loveliness, his love. And so, for that reason, we should praise him. Because our alienation from God is ended at the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we... We are the weak ones. Raise up as you have as you promised you will. Our strength, our horn. Raise up a praise in us, your people. Because you are exalted above heaven and earth. And what you've done for us and in us is eminently worthy of praise. When we take our lives and we set them against the, the stars of the sky that are burning and, and hot and bright and so distant and unfathomable, yet in the midst of this universe, you 
cared about us and you had consideration for us and you reached down and grabbed us for your own. It is mind-boggling and yet it is who you are. It is what you have done. So make us a people that receive. God, there may be those who are, are, are not of your people of, of praise. They are not your saints. They are not your chesed ones. But they feel their estrangement from you. May they find hope in the God who brings sinners home. even when they aren't looking for it, even when they don't desire to look for it. We pray that you would lay your loving kindness on them. Call them by your name.